from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Those individuals in London who Russia's intelligence and security agencies are interested in described an increasing belief that Russia um, is monitoring their activities, um, who they speak with, where they go, and so on and so forth. A new report from the Henry Jackson Society think tank, endorsed by the former director general of MI6, makes explosive claims about the scale of Russian espionage in the UK. The report is based on confidential interviews with high-level dissent, defector, and intelligence sources, and sets out both banal and brazen examples of how Vladimir Putin allegedly menaces the streets of London. And Dr. Andrew Foxhall, author of the report, says these individuals are not just being followed. The small number of people with whom I spoke um, described having received overt threats, including including death threats, um, over recent months. The full story, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, previously on Target USA, in the epilogue of our series, Assassins Incorporated, the Kremlin's Secret Squad of Killers, we began peeling open a new explosive document. In a new report from the Henry Jackson Society think tank in London, titled Putin Sees and Hears It All, How Russia's Intelligence Agencies Menace the UK, Dr. Andrew Foxhall, who authored the report, tells Target USA Russia's killing squads are clearly practicing their trade in Britain. One of the main findings is that um, is that Russia's three main intelligence and security agencies, which is, say, the FSB, the Federal Security Service, the GRU, the GRU, the main intelligence director of the general staff, and the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, um, are all active in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, to a certain extent, as, as one might expect. Individuals, so the second point is that individuals with links to two of these intelligence agencies, which is to say the FSB and the, and the GRU, have murdered individuals on UK soil over the last 12 years. What we're beginning to get a picture of here is that these so-called assassins are not just a self-standing venture. They're at the very least a loosely connected cutout operation run by Russian intelligence with spies as handlers. Individuals with links to the FSB were um, responsible, believed to have been responsible for the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006. And then, of course, earlier this year, um, two serving grew 
uh, officers carried out the attempted assassination of Sergei and Yulia Skripal, but of course um, in March, but of course in July, uh, were responsible ultimately for the for the death of Dawn Sturgis, a, a, a UK citizen. And according to Dr. Foxhall, who makes a very logical point, deliberately or not, the assassins do assassinations. But being connected to the intelligence community of Russia means that clearly they're not running operations. They're simply doing what they're supposed to do. That suggests someone else is calling the shots. As well as assassinations, there's an awful lot of activity that goes on sort of beneath the threshold of what we might call wet work. And all of that activity is what we would broadly think of or, or is being associated with um, with active measures, which is to say that subversive um, political warfare originally employed by the KGB during the Cold War. And that, of course, includes espionage. Now, speaking with um, former and, and current um, intelligence sources in the UK, there's an there's a acknowledgement now that Russia has more case officers in the UK than it did during the Cold War, and probably more so than it did even a decade ago. The, the figure that, that I was told was as, as many as 200 case officers handling upwards, uh, handling upwards of 500 um, agents. And now, uh, of course, on top of those agents, there are any number of informants that these people would, would, would reach out to and, and use. And as we continue looking at this mind-numbing report, According to it, Russia's intelligence and security services are as much as 52 times the size of their British equivalents. Out of an estimated population of 150,000 Russian expats living in London, up to half are said to be FSB, GRU, or SVR informants, potentially some 75,000 assets. And they have specific targets. And on this program, Andrew Foxhall describes who those targets are. Those individuals in London who Russia's intelligence and security agencies are interested in, um, so individuals who occupy positions of power or previously occupied positions of power, um, particularly those who are consequential, it's one way or another with, with, with Russia and Russian affairs, are increasingly, uh, or, or rather described an increasing belief that Russia um, is monitoring their activities, um, who they speak with, where they go, and so on and so forth. A small number of people with whom I spoke um, described having received overt threats, including, including death threats, um, over recent months. And the fifth point really is what, what, we can, what we can do about this. I think there's an awful lot that the UK can do um, in terms of learning from our Western allies. The, the CAPO um, in Estonia do... Uh, some wonderful work making public Russian intelligence um, and espionage activities on, on Estonian territory. And I think that's something that the UK can learn from. I think that the UK can learn from other, uh, others, other of its allies as well. In, for example, on occasions, downgrading intelligence materials for public, ins for public consumption in order to make more forceful or more clear particular arguments that the UK government is making about Russia's activities on its own soil. One of the key things that jumped out at me, um, Andrew, is that um, in your report you say there is an estimated population of 150,000 Russian expats living in London alone, and up to half, and that's a staggering number, 75,000 maybe assets of Russian intelligence. So there's... A 
great de- degree of uncertainty about the number of, of Russians who, who live in the UK, let alone London. Um, one estimate is 150,000. Um, unfortunately, UK census has not been conducted um, terribly recently, so the most recent census data isn't isn't that helpful. Another estimate um, would would put the number at about 60 to 70,000 people. So, um, as I say, there's the, a the great degree of uncertainty about the number of Russians. Um, in the UK now, this this the, the idea I think that that half or, or between a you know a quarter and a half of of, of Russian expats are um, are informants is is I think more a reflection of the degree of paranoia within the London-based Russian community than it is a sort of statistically accurate um, guesstimate of, of of the number of of Russian expats who are who are informers. Um, you know, I think you know, if we were if we were thinking about statistically accurate, then a number of estimates are, are you know it's, uh, uh, have been doing the rounds in the UK a, a thousand, um, you know, between a thousand and and uh, uh, between about a thousand and seven and a half thousand Russians. So, as I say, this is more this is more a reflection of the level of paranoia within Russia's within London's Russia community than it is, I think, an actual suggestion that there are potentially 75,000 people who are informing uh, on the Kremlin's behalf. So what then, whatever the number is, um, then how do, you, how, how do you view how Russia's able to get the information from these people? If they're not intelligence assets, then what's the apparatus or what's the process for getting this information from these potential informants? Well, clearly Russia, um, I, one of the most striking, or it seems to me at least one of the most interesting things about Russian intelligence, uh, the activities of Russian intelligence and security agencies, um, not only in the UK, but more broadly, is the extent to which it um, sort of integrates other institutions um, and individuals into their activities. So Russia's spies, for example, will not only work through um, the Russian embassy, as one might expect, they will also work through other um, state apparatus, whether that would, for example, be Russia's trade delegation, which we know during the Cold War hosted a number of Russian spies, um, whether that is other institutions, as I say, that, that, that the Russian state lends lends its its name to. Um, the, the, one of the things that we know about how Russia operates as well, um, and we know this on the basis of Russian behavior over recent years, is it has... I dare say subcontracted out traditional state activities to non-state actors. So, the according to President Putin, at least if one wants to believe him, um, uh, those responsible for, for example, the hacks of uh, or the hack on Hillary Clinton's emails and the DNC were not members of of the GRU, but were instead quote unquote patriotic hackers. Much like he argues that, or at least argued for the first year, that those people who um, undertook the annexation of Crimea were not serving Russian forces, but were instead, quote-unquote, little green men. So there has been, as I say, this broader sort of um, subcontracting out of traditional state activities, and I think it would be foolish to expect that espionage had, had not undertaken the same process. Dr. Andrew Foxhall, author of the Henry Jackson Society Report, Putin Sees and Hears It All how Russia's intelligence agencies menace the UK. And when we return, we'll hear him describe how the numbers have increased significantly.
the the uh, intelligence sources that I that I, with whom I spoke for this um, for this research suggested that that may now be uh, as as many as 200. That's coming up when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. This is a Target USA moment. Episode 100. Former CIA spy Mark Kelton behind the Iron Curtain. One time I had to mail a letter to an agent uh, and mail it without the opposition knowing it. It was uh, January, very, very cold, uh, below zero. And uh, after a long route to try to ensure that there was no one behind me, I got to the, uh, to the place where I was supposed to mail it. But, you know, the, the fear, of course, of getting caught, I was actually sweating. It was, it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was well below zero, but sweating because of the concern. Um, I, my hands were so cold, I, I opened the letterbox, uh, went to slip the letter inside, and it dropped with a clang, and all the, the letterbox itself dropped with a, dropped with a clang. Mm-hmm. The, and I looked up and down, it was a vacant street, wondering if anybody had heard me. I remember, th- I'll remember that till the, uh, till the day I die. This has been a Target USA Moment, Episode 100. Download it. Relive it. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Andrew Foxhall with the Henry Jackson Society about the number of Russian spies and agents inside the U.K. and what they've been doing. And now, as we return, he talks about how the numbers have increased significantly over the years. Looking at what the U.S. has been going through, and you mentioned some of that in your remarks, um, what what can the U.S. Uh, intelligence uh, services draw from this report? Uh, one of the things that I have noticed in, in a conversation with a former um, intelligence of, official some months ago, he mentioned that uh, there are a minimum of 250 Russian spies in his his view, in Washington alone, and uh, that is a significant uptick in the number. Um, so, what can the U.S. Uh, what would you suggest the U.S. be able to draw from your reporting? Well, I, I, so first of all, like we've seen in the U.K. at least again, and these are estimates, a similar increase uh, in the number of, of of Russian spies. So, at the height of the Cold War, at least in. 1985, 1986, Oleg Gordievsky, who was a KGB colonel uh, who, who was a double agent for MI6, uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, estimated that there were 39 Soviet case officers in London at, at, at that point. Um, in, in 2013, he, um, he updated his estimate to say that, that that had risen to 51. Now, the, the um, intelligence sources that I, that I, with whom I spoke for this, um, for this research suggested that that may now be uh, as, as many as 200. So again, a significant increase fourfold since 2013 or certainly fivefold since the, since the Cold War. And I think that is one of the key takeaways of this, that, that Russia um, is more active, is, is more uh, well-resourced and is more aggressive, I think, than, than, than um, 
not that we would accept, but but which but but more than we're willing to to contemplate. Um, that has obvious implications for how we think about dealing with the the Russian threat itself. So one of the things that's also important, and I've been reading this book by Oleg Gordievsky and Christopher Andrew from some years ago. It's called Comrade Khrushchev's Instructions: Top Secret Files on KGB Foreign Operations, seventy-five to eighty-five. And as you say, there's a significant amount of information suggesting how Russia or the, the Soviet state at that time would go about its work. And it appears as though in the last few years, the Putin apparatus has sort of gone back to some of those tactics again. And I'm wondering, um, as we look at what is taking place in the West now specifically, uh, is this a, a matter now where the West has to go back to some of the activities and engagements uh, that it, it, it undertook during the Cold War to counteract what you and others, others are seeing from Russian intelligence? I think there, are, there certainly are lessons to be learned from, from the Cold War um, in terms of how we, how we combat and counter Russia's activities. But it seems to me that, that we're not in a new Cold War. I think that, 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 that sort of what we're experiencing now and what we experienced between 45 and 91 are, are, are very, different, um, very different situations. It seems to me that um, in, where the UK is concerned, you know, the, for a long time, I think the government, successive UK governments, um, struggled to comprehend that that Russia was not a failing democracy, but was instead a succeeding authoritarian state. And I think that the, the, that the shift in mentality has taken a while, or the shift in how one, how the government thinks about Russia has taken a while to take place. But I do think we're moving in the right in the right um, direction. I would also say that. In, in terms of countering the, the threat that Russia poses, it, it, it's not simply espionage that we should concern ourselves with. As I say, espionage is one part of a much broader series of activities associated with, with active measures. So if we are concerned, as I think we should be, about Russian um, espionage, then we also ought to be concerned about Russian media ownership, um, Russia's traditional warfare, the sort that it has waged in Ukraine, Russian cyber warfare, the sort that it is, has waged in Estonia, um, the broader sort of undermining and, and attempt to subvert Western democracy. Espionage is, of course, an aspect of this, but it, it is only an aspect of a much broader, um, uh, a much broader campaign that, that Russia is waging. That's Dr. Andrew Foxhall talking about his report, Putin Sees and Hears It All, How Russia's Intelligence Agencies Menace the UK. Now to the US. Recently, I spoke with John Seifer, who's a retired CIA operative who actually worked in Russia House at the CIA, but he also worked covertly inside Russia. And we talked specifically about the Russian presence in the United States. And I want to bring you a part of that conversation right now. One person that I was very familiar with who's passed away, who was a, a Russian defector to the U.S., told me years ago that there were more Russian spies in the U.S. And this was during the 2010 time frame, um, 20, 2007, I should say, to 2010 time frame that we're talking, he and I. Um, they had more uh, spies here in the U.S. Than, than they had ever had in the past. Do you agree with that? And what role do you think they played, if you agree? If not, then explain. I absolutely agree with it. Uh, I was very heavily involved in the arrest of, of Robert Hansen, the FBI special agent, 
uh, and had been involved. I had served in Moscow when Elder James was arrested. So I've been involved in several of these tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats and spies. Um, so the Russians, you know, this is an open society. And the people who are meant to defend in the counterintelligence realm against Russian spies and Chinese spies and others are the FBI. And the FBI are, are talented and very good at what they do, but they just don't have the resources to cover large amounts of spies in the United States, especially when they're focused on, on terrorism and making sure they run down every terrorist lead. So it's in the Russians' advantage to try to flood the zone and have as many people here as they can to collect information and understand the United States and have people in key places, which I'm sure helped them quite a bit in 2016. So one of the things we've seen recently as we've, we've thrown out some diplomats and spies and they've done the same to us, for those of us in the, in, in the professional side, that's often very hard to see because they, they have somewhere on the order of 175 to 225 something spies in the United States. The United States has a handful, maybe a couple dozen or, you know, in Russia. So when, they, when we throw out 50, that means they're going to throw out 50 in ours and we're going to end up with small right. numbers and they're going to still have a quite a large number. So is that 200 and some number uh, just a, a hypothetical number you're throwing out or is that uh, closer to the truth? It's closer to the truth. Um, the Russians had a large presence here d- during the Cold War, but the FBI you know, understood during the Cold War that our main adversary was the Soviet Union and put a lot of resources on them. Uh, my understanding from talking to professionals and friends and others in the FBI is that, is that those numbers have grown over time. And so I certainly don't, ha- you know, I don't go in and ask specific things since I've retired, that would be wrong. But, but let's say the numbers are in the, in the hundreds, at least 150 or more. It and, was before these expulsions. Well, that was my question. How do these expulsions, and, and even a better question perhaps, is how does, does the closure of a couple of these locations, several of these locations, including the one in Long Island, the one out in Maryland, the one in the consulate in San Francisco, and then again in Seattle, how does that impact their uh, their espionage machine, their ability to do this work that, um, again, was pointed out in the assessment of their activities as being fairly significant. How does how, how does the closure uh, of those locations impact their, their ability to do what they want to do? I think there's, there's two ways to look at this. One is those act, actions taken by the United States to put pressure on the Russian was to try to influence Vladimir Putin, to try to get him to change the way he does things. The closure of those and the kicking out of diplomats, I don't think has a large effect on him. I don't think he's going to change the way he does business because diplomats get thrown out. I think it's a price he's willing to pay. For the espionage apparatus and the work they do, it certainly makes it harder for them. It was very easy when they were traveling out to Maryland. If if the FBI didn't have enough surveillance resources to follow them, they could break off and go uh, get involved in espionage, maybe tap phone lines or what have you. Um, they uh, took that uh, consulate in San Francisco very seriously. If we, you know, we think about what's out there with the national labs and Silicon Valley and 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 you know, a lot of things on the West Coast that the Russians are very interested in, I think that was very important to them. So I do think the recent expulsions from 2017 and again in 2018 make it harder for the Russians. But again, we're an, we're an open society. It is easier for them to send people here undercover traveling and meet people and do things than it is for us to get into Russia, which has a very still very massive internal security apparatus where it's much harder for Americans to move freely around Russia 
mm-hmm. that context. So I want to ask a question about their doctrine, but I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds with this because there's a lot more exciting stuff about you and what you've done and, and, and what is going on present time than history. But you have an excellent grasp of this because of your work and I I wonder if you could explain, you know, where they got this doctrine from that they employ, which seems to underpin their their espionage operations. Uh, And and I can't explain it myself. All I can say is what I've heard from people like you is that this is deeply rooted in uh, longstanding Soviet, even pre-Soviet traditions. Yeah, I'll try not to go too far because there's there's quite a bit of material here. Um, If we look back at the beginning of the Soviet state in 1917, the first thing that Lenin did with his people as the Bolsheviks took over was create an internal security service, which they called the Cheka, put a guy named Felix Dzerzhinsky in charge of it. And before they even came up with an economic plan and a political plan, they were putting together what we saw in 2016, what we call active measures. They'd created false worldwide organizations to try to draw in oppositionists and their enemies so that they could uncover them, kill them, and 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 uh, control the people who might be opposition to them. Can I interrupt and ask a really quick question yeah, without getting you, no, without making you lose your train of thought? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere some some time ago that this guy Jasinski mm-hmm. was responsible for this ingenious plan that got Russian exiles to pay for their essentially their own demise. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We still study it in the services. It was called the trust operation. The trust operation. Exactly. And they put together a thing called the Russian, uh, I'm not even sure, Central Russian Monarchist Organization that they ran in England and France and in areas around Russia and the Soviet Union, which was, in other words, the the Soviet state was running an anti-Soviet operation to bring people in to work against the Soviet state. So that they could then uncover them and, and kill them, and so it was. It was a it's a masterful operation. It was run literally, you know, within months after the beginning of the state. This is the ultimate in deception. Yeah, they're, 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 I have to say, I mean, the Russians are excellent at this, and through most of the 20th century, their operations, intelligence, and espionage operations against the United States and Britain were far better than anything we had against them. And you know, even if we look back before that, you know, the the Okhrana, which was the czarist mm-hmm. secret services, were quite adept. They've, they're still in the Middle East, people who believe some of the disinformation that, they, that the Okhrana cre- created in the 1890s oh about gosh. Jewish groups. They called the, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, which is still out on the internet if you look for it, which is uh, anti-Jewish, sort of anti-Semitic um, uh, treatise that mm-hmm. people still believe is real. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the early Soviet leaders, Lenin and Stalin, those are those are alias names. Those are names because that they grew up in undercover, um, secret cell type of information, you know, in, in inside the country. So they've got a long history of internal security services working against internal security services, thinking about these kind of things that is just alien to the United States. We don't think about spying. We don't think about espionage in our everyday life. Whereas to this day, the Russians, are st- it's still a central factor of, of foreign policy in the, in the state. Safe to say it's highly evolved now, huh? They've always been very good, and it certainly is highly involved. And one no, of, I mean highly evolved. It, it's highly evolved, and one of the things I think that certainly helps that is Vladimir Putin was a career KGB officer who takes great pride in the Czechist tradition. So that original 
Soviet intelligence service called the Cheka. They have a, every year they have Czechist Day that is celebrated, and Vladimir Putin makes sure that he's back in Russia so he can attend Czechist Day every year hmm. to uh, talk about their past. That's John Seifer, retired CIA officer. We're talking about Russia's eyes and ears, inside and outside of the Kremlin, and what they've been doing in the UK and the US. There's more to discuss about this topic, and we'll be back to it soon. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast, and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.